um, it's later than I realized. I, I love the metaphor <coughs> of the two wings of the Dharma. Um, and I like this quote from the Dalai Lama. It's not on your handout, but uh, he's, it's not from him. He, it's his translation of one of the old texts on emptiness. And he says, the altruistic mind of awakening is the root of enlightenment. And it should be complemented by the wisdom that realizes emptiness. And I want to talk a little bit about emptiness in the context of the aggregates. And uh, in early Buddhism, you know, uh, it, it seems to have two main meanings, emptiness. One is... Um, a way of understanding uh, our experience in general, a moment-to-moment experience. And the other refers to a particular type of meditation practice. Um, uh, And there are suttas that describe this meditation practice, uh, meditating on emptiness. And of of course in Mahayana Buddhism, uh, emptiness has other shades of meaning that are outside of my area of comfort and knowledge. So I'm just going to focus on emptiness in the early Buddhist sense as a, um, a way of approaching everyday experience, uh, moment-to-moment experience. Um, Ajahn Amaro, in a lovely book called The Island, uh, and I put the citation down there because it's a free download. Uh, it's on the handout. He says that the early suttas usually, most often use the word empty, the adjective form, not the noun emptiness. It's a, it's a quality that experiences have. It's not a thing in itself. And it's very important when talking about emptiness to make sure that you don't think this, this teaching, at least this aspect of it, is pointing to some special entity, some metaphysical substance that's really cool. Um, it's a quality of ordinary experience, uh, uh, the quality of being empty. It's nothing else. It's, a, it's basically a shift in perception of phenomena or uh, an addition to our perception of phenomena. Um, I've talked about Donald Hoffman's model of perception as icons on a desktop. And emptiness fits very well into that metaphor because the icon, I mean, it's useful. It, it's a real icon, but there's a tendency to think of it as the, as the tax return, as the document, the, the manuscript you're working on. It's not that. It just represents it. Um, and that's the same way with our perceptions. They're, we, we tend to think of them as a real things, and yet they are just this interface. Uh, the primary text on emptiness that I'm familiar with is uh, by Nagarjuna, The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way, which was written about 200 AD. So was, this is not really early Buddhism, but it's pretty early. And uh, it's just a very helpful exposition on emptiness. And Nagarjuna sort of systematically goes through all the kinds of things that we might tend to think have some essential realness, like time and motion and suffering. Um, 
everything really, action, desire, the self. And he systematically shows that none of them really stand up to scrutiny. They're all dependently arisen. They all only exist in the context of, of other things. Uh, they arise dependently. No intrinsic essence. This is a pers- perspective that um, modern physicists would agree with, that when you look very closely at the stuff of the world, uh, it's not what it looks like. You know, it, it uh, breaks down. Uh, our models break down at a certain point, and we get the weirdness of quantum physics at the tiniest level, both at the micro level, um, where... You know, things don't exist until you observe them. Uh, and when you observe something that's entangled with something else, the, the something else changes at the moment of observation. And it could be light years away. So, um, also at the cosmological level of physics, at the highest level, um, it becomes apparent that what we know is really just our models. Um, that the, and the models break down. Um, Einstein is quoted as saying, even with regard to space and time, which we think of as fundamental, he says, space and time are modes in which we think, not conditions in which we exist. It's just how we make sense of our experience. Now, physics has a lot of very useful models, and just our own perceptions as human beings are, are, are essential it's essential that we impose models on the fluidity of our experience. But it's also important not to believe that, they, uh, that these models have any fundamental real essence in the world. And this is kind of what the teachings on emptiness in the context that I've described are about. Nagarjuna um, teaches how to use this insight in practice using the metaphor of two truths. Conventional truth is, is our models. The sense we make, that's the valid sense we make, and I mean valid in the sense of it's useful. Um, I mean, some models are demonstrably wrong. Um, so something can be conventionally false, but something can be conventionally true. Most of physics, they test it for conventional veracity. It is conventionally true. And yet, at the ultimate level, it breaks down into simply ways we think about things. So the two truths are that um, the conventional truths that are useful to us and the ultimate truth, which is the insight that conventional truth is empty of any fundamental realness, that it's simply useful. It's not what's really there. That's not given to us. The the foam sutta that we we read in the very beginning also talks about um, the aggregates as being like a magic trick or a mirage. Um, Jay Garfield, who translated the Nagarjuna text that that I've studied, um, he has a metaphor... Uh, that involves a mirage. Um, actually, before I come to that, I'll, I'll just quote some other things that Carf- Garfield says. It's very helpful in his commentary on, on Nagarjuna's uh, text on emptiness. He, Garfield points out that emptiness and the phenomenal world, the conventional reality, are not two distinct things. 
they're just two different ways of characterizing the same thing, which is our experience. We characterize it conventionally, we use it, we interact. We also characterize it with the inside of emptiness. We see its fluidity. Um, the idea in practicing with the teachings on emptiness are not to discard conventional perceptions or understandings, narratives, models. Don't discard them. You'd not get far without them. But to add to them the inside of emptiness. Two truths, not just one truth. The only thing that's discarded is, if possible, this teaching helps us to discard the underlying tendencies that get us into trouble, greed, hatred, and delusion. The assertions of these teachings are not that conventional reality is not real, nor an acceptance of the conventional notions of what is real. It's, uh, it's the middle path. It's all we have. The practice is holding the two truths simultaneously. Garfield uses the mirage analogy uh, <clears throat> and with this story. He says, imagine uh, three travelers in a desert and uh, two of them are, ni- are new to the desert. They haven't been in the desert before. One of them has polarizing sunglasses on and the other one doesn't. And the third person is wise to the ways of the desert, has traveled in the desert a lot. So they're traveling together, and uh, one of the novice, desert novices points over and says, Look, water! He's seeing a mirage of water. The other novice, who's wearing polarizing sunglasses, doesn't see the illusion of the mirage because the polarizing glasses filter that out. He doesn't know what his friend is talking about. But the, the person wise to the ways of the desert looks over and says, Oh, that's not really water, that's a mirage. It won't satisfy your thirst. There's no point in going there. And the purpose of these teachings is to be like the third person, the, uh, the one wise to the ways of the desert. It's not, and I think sometimes people find the, the joy of seclusion and meditation. You don't want that to be like putting on the polarizing sunglasses and not seeing the conventional world. That's, that's where the benevolent qualities arise in us, is in responding. We can see that people are thirsting after something that's a mirage. We see it. We're not not seeing it. We see the two truths. Compassion re- requires that. So we're not retreating from the world. In the island, Ajahn Amaro also uh, talks about how in the early suttas emptiness is almost always presented or is often presented in the context of empty of self and there is a sutta on the text handout someone would be kind enough to read um, it's the second to last I'm sorry the third to last sutta emptiness and not self Sir, they say that the word, the world is empty. What does the saying, the world is empty, refer to? Ananda, they say that the world is empty because it's empty of self or what belongs to self. 
in what is empty of self or what belongs to self. The eye, sights, eye consciousness, and eye contact are empty of self or what belongs to self. Ear, nose, taste, and touch. The pleasant, painful, or neutral feeling that arises conditioned by mind contact is also empty of self or what belongs to self. They say that the world is empty. Thank you. So uh, this is an example of the teachings on emptiness being really applied to the one type of reification that, that's particularly problematic for us, and which is to take things personally or to think of things as ourselves or mine. And he goes through the different senses, you know, any experience can be identified with. Um, and the, one of the most useful fruits of understanding emptiness is to apply it to this identification process and see that it's something that we add to our experience. Now, um, you know, it's a slippery to talk about the teachings on not-self, anatta, in Buddhism. It's very much against the stream. <clears throat> um, and there are some aspects of how we talk about uh, oneself how, uh, that don't really involve this projection. I mean, we are uh, individuals. We can refer to ourselves. It's meaningful to refer to an individual as diff- different from a different individual. It's the imputing of a of a little self inside the, the individual that is not even conventionally true. Um, there is nothing there, you know. Neuroscientists have looked through most of the parts of the brain now. There's no little self in there. It's a system. Um, and one of the things it does is identify with things. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about that process and... Um, and how to work with the teachings on not-self. I like to think of it as not-self rather than no-self. That sounds sort of like a metaphysical assertion that such a thing as a self doesn't exist. And Whereas not-self, to my mind, is more like if you study everything and ask, is that self? The answer will always be not-self. Uh, because once you look at it closely enough, um, you realize it has qualities that don't map onto what we mean by self. Typically, it's something like, I can't control it. You know, I think of, We think of our bodies as ourselves. We identify with them. If someone insults our body, we take it personally. But we can't make it beautiful or ugly. I mean, I mean, to some extent, maybe we can take care of it. But mostly, it is what it is. We, it's going to get sick, and it's going to stop working. It's not a self. Like We have this idea that we're like a little mini deity. We're all powerful over the things we own or, or are. But there's nothing that stands up to that where you can say, yes, here's an example of that. There's nothing we're a a mini-deity over. It's just an illusion. It's not even conventionally true. The only thing that's conventionally true is we're individuals. We have our our own skin, you know, our own life history. But making it personal, that's optional. Not easy to stop doing, of course. Easy, Easy for me to say this. I like uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu's views on uh, how to talk about self. He just says, all views of self are empty. 
You might find that helpful. So no matter how you want to think about it, it isn't that way. <laughs> anyway, in working with this, I, I think there's several key steps in working with the teachings of not-self. And I'll try to bring a little psychology and neuroscience into it. One is being curious about uh, this projection of identity and, and asking the question, you know, is it maybe this is added to experience, you know, just being curious about it because it's so counterintuitive. And then if you are curious, you can take a look at what, why would we do this? Well, what, what is the advantage of identification? And there are some built-in ways that make us inclined to identify with things. And then to understand the disadvantages of identification or selfing, some people call it, because it really it does lead to a lot of unhappiness. And then finally, uh, ways of changing these automatic uh, processes, working with it so it's not, we're not doing that as much. We're identifying with less. So, um, I mean, the Buddha so kind of, in some places he says, uh, Craving and clinging, you know, the basic unskillful behaviors are sort of the same as self-making. There's a way in which they're the manifestation of the same thing. Um, And the way I think about this is that, um, and this connects a little bit to the science side, um, that the, um, if you reflect on something you think of as myself or yourself or something you own, it's rarely neutral Vedana. Uh, identification tends to amplify Vedana. So if you hear uh, some bad news, um, well, let's start with good news. Some, somebody wins the lottery, you know, in some other state, you know, oh, that's nice. Somebody wins the lottery in your town, it's because it's a little bit, you know, it's a little closer to you. It's kind of a little more pleasant. You know, one of your relatives wins the lottery? That's even more. And then, and then, of course, if you win the lottery, that's absolutely the most pleasant. The proximity to selfness is, a, is like an amplifier for Vedana. Same with bad news. Right? I mean, it's just what... You can see the evolutionary advantage of that. We should care the most about our own little bag of DNA because it wants to survive and reproduce. There are a lot of ways this shows up um, in scientific studies. Um, if you, it, when people just simply think about themselves, their pleasure center lights up. Most people. For most people, there's a positive Vedana associated with self. Um, so you, they've done studies where people are getting a brain scan and they recite an opinion in the scanner. Now, the opinion is either their opinion about some topic or the opinion of some well-known person, a president or a celebrity. Pardon me. The difference between the two conditions is then when a person is reciting their own opinion, these reward centers, pleasure and wanting centers, are very active. It gives us pleasure to tell others our opinions. Um, that's because they're ours. Um, there's the, the ownership effect also sometimes called the endowment effect uh, that was first described by Danny Kahneman. He won the Nobel Prize for showing how some irrational behaviors affect economic decisions. It was a simple experiment. You know, he, uh, he brought some mugs to the undergraduate economics class with the sc- <coughs> excuse me, school logo on the mugs. 
And he, he did a survey and he asked students to estimate how much they were worth, what they would pay for these mugs. And this was many years ago. I think it was like the average was like $2. A lot of inflation ago. Um, and then to another class, he took a bunch of these mugs and he gifted them to half the students. I'm giving you a mug today. And the other half, he said, I'll, I'll give you some money and you can bid on the mugs. And it was a silent bidding process. And so the, the students who didn't have mugs but had some resources, some money, <coughs> could say it would be the most they would pay for the mug. And the students who did have a mug would say what would be the least they would accept for the mug. <coughs> and uh, the students who didn't have a mug, their, their average that they would be willing to pay was two bucks, just like he had determined before in a different group of similar undergraduates. But the people who now, where the mug had now become swept into the orbit of the self, it was their mug. They wouldn't take less than five fifty for it. <laughs> so the self, it amplifies pleasantness, also unpleasantness. Really bad things, if, they're, if they belong to the self, it's even worse. They're even worse. It matters more. There's this thing called the superiority illusion that Garrison Keillor kind of made jokes about all the time, where uh, uh, the town in Minnesota where all the children are above average. Um, people always rate themselves as above average on pretty much anything. Uh, and it's just statistically impossible for everyone, as you can well imagine, uh, to be above average. And, uh, and except on negative traits, in which they're below average on those traits. Uh, it doesn't matter what the traits are. And studies have shown that if you, ask, if you do this kind of questioning when someone's getting their brain scanned, the more activity they have in the pleasure center in response to these questions, the more exaggerated the superiority illusion is. Um, and there's this, I mentioned before, the anterior cingulate that has this kind of looking out for making mistakes, errors, uh, the stronger the connection between the anterior cingulate and these pleasure centers, the less prone they are to the superiority illusion. There's a reality testing going on there, where some higher functions are saying, well, you know, that's your intendancy, but he's asking you a question, let's be honest, you know. You know that's false. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Once something is identified with, the Vedana associated with it gets boosted, pleasant or unpleasant, it gets stronger. There are these studies where they ask people, they give people lists of numbers or letters, and they say, which, which letters or numbers do you like the most? Well, it's consistently the letters that, uh, comp- that comprise their initials, the initials of their name, or the numbers that comprise their birth date. So, I mean, this is part of why we identify with things. It feels good. You know, we're designed to kind of have ownership and protect and hyper-value things. That's probably going to support our, our survival. It's, that, it's, it's not different from craving and clinging. It involves the same circuits. Um... Yeah. So there's uh, 
there's a quote that uh, I think maybe it's getting late. I'm going to zoom through this, but uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, in, in one of his commentaries on the uh, Samyutta Nikaya, says that uh, identification or grasping and clinging to the five aggregates occurs in two principal modes appropriation, which he equates to owning, and identification, which he equates to considering I or me <clears throat> about it. And I and me are, slightly two, are two slightly different ways of identifying. Uh, I am, which is uh, this uh, asmimana um, fetter in Buddhist teachings, versus uh, me, which is sakya ditti, identity view, thinking of yourself as a concrete entity. Uh, the subtle I am and the more concrete this is me uh, identification process and so he, he makes these three things ownership thinking of yourself in concrete terms as an entity uh, that's personal and then just the the subtle delusion of, of I am so I, I want to relate that to some features of human perception and I'm going to not do justice to this because I do want to end on time but I didn't mention when we talked about perception that most uh, creatures certainly mammals um, format their perceptions in, in some different ways. There are three um, perceptual processing streams that are anatomically distinct in the human being that prioritize a different formatting. And the, most, the one that we are most aware of is called the ventral stream because it's anatomically on the bottom part, the ventral part of the, of the cortex. And in vision, I mentioned vision starts in the back and comes forward along the side and over the top. Well, the ventral stream is only along the side, which is the lowest part. It has its own cells in the retina. Um, it has its own little zone of the optic nerve. They're segregated. This stream that's formatted for perceiving objects. That's what it's good at. From the, from the very first... Sen- uh, rods and cones and retinal ganglion cells, the optic nerve, the thalamus, it has its own little <coughs> place in the thalamus. It goes up to the cortex. It's segregated. It's, it's, it's an anatomic organ, the object-perceiving organ. Um, and then there's another one that's called, um, and it's called perception for cognition. It's, it, it, it's connected to our language structures. It makes possible semantic processing. It makes possible categorization. It's all extensions of the notion of an object of a thingness, something with boundaries that aren't really there, but they're useful. That kind of a concrete mapping. Now, the, that's about 60% of the visual input is in the is object-formatted organ. And the other one is an action-formatted stream of perception called the dorsal stream because it goes over the top of the head. And it also has its own cells in the retina and its own little package in the optic nerve and its own place in the thalamus and it formats visual information so that it's useful for guiding our behavior in real time it's it's formatted to enable action whereas the object stream is formatted to enable cognition okay and there's a third stream that is um only about 10 percent of the input from the uh, it's like I don't know, over 50 for the object stream, maybe 35 or 40 for the action stream, 5 or 7% for this third stream, and then a few other miscellaneous things that are hard to classify. But the third stream is, is uh, cognition for feeling. 
it comes, it, does, it's, it doesn't go right to the cortex. It goes to the more primitive parts of the brain, the midbrain, primarily, where it, it facilitates rapid judgments about what's important, what's good and what's bad. It communicates with the cortex, of course, but it's, it's optimizing very quick reactions. So when you hit the brakes before the rest of your brain knows about it, that's your, that stream, that fast stream of visual processing that says, bad, stop. <laughs> it's not sophisticated, but it's fast. These are... Um, our perce- you know, we, we kind of live in the object stream. We don't sometimes even notice the, the action stream. We, it's, it's perfectly conscious in a phenomenal way. But it's not necessarily conscious in an access, can talk about it easily way. That's why a skilled athlete can hit a curveball, but he can't explain to you how he does it. But that's the dorsal stream. He sees, he acts, and he's very, very intelligent in that kind of intelligence. So I'm, I'm going over this way too fast, but I do have a little table and some pictures on the third page of the color handout that tries to illustrate this. And I, I, I'm not sure how easy it is to get this across. So anyway, you let me know. But the left stream is, this is kind of what the, the object stream is really good at, the ventral stream. Uh, identifying individuals, individual objects. You know, that's just sort of like the person who just got their vision back wouldn't make sense of that mess of dog images. But, you know, if you have a well-trained object models, you can find all the different individuals in there and identify them. On the right, this is a skier standing at the precipice of a slope, and uh, they know what they're going to do. They see it. They couldn't tell you, maybe. It doesn't lend itself to language, but it's conscious. Uh, that's the, uh, the action-formatted stream. And then in the middle, it's this perception for feeling. Um, when, some, you know, when something good is happening, we, we know about it. Um, there's this, there's a, a condition that I don't have time to go into, but uh, where people are blind in one field, they've had damage to a certain part of the brain, they can't see anything uh, on the left side of space. But if you give them a gift, in, right in front of them, say, I'm giving you this gift, and then you put the gift on the left side of space, they'll see it. Because it's a more primitive, it's subcortical, their damage is cortical. But this subcortical region reads the Vedana in the visual stimulus really quickly and, 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 pins and brings their attention to it. Their lesion only prevents them from pushing their attention to neutral things. Um, but it can be pulled by these more primitive systems. And this is something I've been thinking about because I think that these three primary streams of human perception... And by the way, no other animal has an object stream as sophisticated as ours. There are plenty of animals with really good ventral, uh, dorsal action streams. You know, monkeys that can swing through the trees, cats, you know, dolphins. Very graceful, very highly sophisticated movement capacities relating to the environment in a sophisticated way with motion. We're not special in that regard, but we are special in this object stream. But it's a bit of a, well, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, you know, we create this object world and then we inhabit it like it's actually the world. But it's just a useful model for the world, for some aspects of the world. And uh, I, I think that it overlaps a little bit into the three ways that we identify with experience. That is, the object stream is sort of 
custom made for us to think of ourselves as an, as an object, <laughs> me, uh, uh, as an entity. This is me. I have these characteristics. Um, you know, we're good at making objects, and we make one of ourselves as well. The feeling stream, uh, that's sort of tied into the Vedana and the, the, the pleasure of self-ownership, the fact that selfing is, activates Vedana. And I think that relates to mind, <coughs> the craving. Whereas the uh, perception for action, it's this sort of subtle, hard-to-name sense of, I'm here. I'm this. I'm acting. I'm an agent in the world. I mean, in, in the sense of an individual, it's not false. The individual has a location. But to identify with it, to take it personally, is, is part of the illusion. So I just offer that up for your consideration. It, it's a subtle thing about our perceptions. It's not often talked about. I think people neglect the dorsal stream, the, the action stream. Um, and yet it's a source of well-being in our lives. Um, there's evidence that it's an important part of psychotherapy to engage people in physical activity in part because most of their perceived deficits are being appreciated with the sort of object type of processing of their own perceptions. When you get them just doing stuff, I'm talking about people who are depressed, there's this uh, fluid mastery in action that becomes a counterweight. And yet it's not a big presence in their, in their access consciousness. It's only there in their phenomenal consciousness, but it still has the feeling of mastery associated with it. And it's very therapeutic to get people doing things when they're stuck in some kind of self-critical black hole that's mostly a function of the object stream of their thinking and, and perceptions. Anyway, I just want to put in a plug for paying attention to your embodied awarenesses uh, in the dorsal stream. And, and I'll stop talking there and see if you have questions about this material. Yeah. When we talk about identification, you use the phrase, we identify. And it seems to me that that probably is just conventional language. Yeah. That identification is something that happens. It's not anything we do because right. the we is just an icon or just a mirage. And so what I'm wondering is whether there are brain processes that have been identified that are happening when identification is happening. If there's brain processes that we can say there's where identification happens. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, as I said, the reward circuits are, are active. Once identification has occurred, they, the object that's identified with it has stronger Vedana than it did before. Um, when people in, in the dorsal stream, the inactive stream, um, or perception for action, um, so that part of the brain, the, the dorsal stream of perception, and by the way, this is to a vision and hearing and touch, all three, and memory, all, all four have, these four have these three streams that are anatomically segregated and are specialized at hearing or, or remembering or deciphering the haptically the, the textures of things in terms of their object qualities or how to interact with them or what the feeling meaning of them is. Anyway, uh, your question. So one of the things that, they've, that we can learn from brain science, though, is that um, the, the dorsal stream of vision 
um, map, makes maps so that you can act kind of in these virtual maps, in this simulation. You can act in your own simulation and it will translate into a, an effective action in the world. And the, ma- the main map is centered around your, here, you know, the eye, where the eyes are. The main map. But this part of the brain makes other maps. It makes maps that are centered around where your dominant hand is. It's, whenever you walk into a new environment, a new room, that's happening below consciousness. It, these maps are just being constructed because you might need them later. You know? So just in the background, map for your right hand, map for your left hand, map for your feet, map for your head. And if there's somebody that's a close friend in the room, you make a map for where the, where the room is for him or her. You make maps for other people. And these are lesser things. The main map is centered on you. The egocentric map. I am here. Uh, so that, that's represented differently. And people who are really skillful at switching between maps, and that's what the last color picture on the handout is, and I didn't think I'd get to, but Tony's question really drove me right into it. Um, there are people who can look at an avatar and quickly say what, what she can see. What, what the world looks like from her vantage point and then go back and forth between their own vantage point and her vantage point. And they're tens of milliseconds faster than people who aren't good at this. Everybody can do this. You can make yourself see what someone else is seeing. But some people just do it without many errors and, hundreds, and tens of milliseconds faster than other people. And that is a, is a way of not being sort of too stuck. I mean, this sounds like speculation, but I'll try to give you some evidence for this. To me that fits in with the idea of that a fluidity in spite of identification. It is the point of view of your individual organism, but it's not special, it's not so special that you can't easily move off it. So people who can do this with great facility, they have interesting qualities. They're more generous. They, they donate more if you ask them to fill out, well, how much did you donate this year? Or if you put them in an experiment where you give them some They've earned some money and then you give them an opportunity to share it with the other people in the experiment, they'll share more of it. For people for whom it's easy to take the perspective of another, which is this stream for action kind of part of the brain, they're more generous. They also can postpone gratification. They're they're not as hooked by immediate bait for some reason. That facility allows them, they'll, they'll do well in the marshmallow test, you know, that was given to children. There's adult versions of that. Um, they're good at saying, no, I'll wait. I'll wait for a bigger reward later. So there is something about not being too stuck on that identification with where you are in the world of action. Yeah. Are you saying the ability to make maps for other people is causative of these differences or okay no it's just associated no i don't i mean that's an interesting question and there are people who have lesions in this in this mapping area but i don't think anyone's ever looked to see whether their their donation level drops you know on their tax returns Um, it's you know i sort of doubt it's causative but it's it might be just another expression of of having that kind of a mind
having said all of this, are there processes in the brain that you know of that help us to counteract this identification with self? Well, um, you know, I don't know about it in the brain, but mindfulness, you know, uh, we have these, we have these, I mean, if you think of identification as being a particularly problematic elaboration of our reward circuitry and our wanting circuitry, we have, we have the ability to govern those things. Um, we have the wiring to do that. So it's a matter of being mindful and, and having that be a real goal with some urgency. Uh, so I'm going to ask you to think more with the psychiatry side of the brain, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it's not related to this most immediate material. Uh, but I'm wondering if you're talking to a non-practicing audience and you're supposed uh, to ask you to think about what are the most helpful habits or behaviors for folks to do that might help them live a more skillful life. What might those be? Oh. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> it's a great question for everyone here, actually. Um, well, uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of things to do. You know, take care of your brain. Get plenty of sleep. Your brain needs sleep. You know, every jellyfish sleep. It's a fe- feature of nervous system. We're so busy, we sort of neglect that. Take care of it. it, it the higher centers will function better. Um, when you see opportunities to do the right thing, even if they're fleeting, just do them because it'll build up that tendency, you know. Don't double think it. If you see something wholesome arising, grab it. Don't own it. Just know that's, that will be helpful. Um, opposite for unwholesome. <laughs> So you said something about um, thinking about the self um, has a, a positive valence. But then Mostly. There's, right. There's also this default mode network where we sit and ruminate about ourselves, and that makes us unhappy. So can you, can you tease those two ideas apart? Yes. <sighs> so a big part of the default mode network is... Uh, a part of the brain that uh, uh, is involved in autobiographical memory, and so people um, kind of ruminate about their ha- their past. Um, uh, and um, if you're feeling negative, now, now I s- say that most self-representations have a positive uh, slant to them. That's not true if you're feeling bad about yourself. And what what I should say is that identification amplifies feeling. And if it's mildly positive, it'll, the positive will stand out. But if it's mildly negative, and, you know, if, when people are suffering from a depression, it's the opposite. Depressed patients, you, you give them the mug, you know, and ask them how much they'll take for it. They'll take a dollar for it because it's theirs. It can't be worth much. So the, the mug is, is caught their own self-devaluation. Um, so you see the opposite things in people who are having a negative self-experience. Uh, and... That happens a fair amount, actually, and so there is that. Um, and, the, and ruminations are uh, 
often a feature of, of depression. Most people don't ruminate about their, their past. And often it's because something wasn't right and you're trying to go back and fix it, you know, as if you could somehow have a better past. Uh, Any other questions? Well, thank you for your attention.